You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, you can have a seat there where you are. And if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 20. And it would really be helpful if you had that out and open on your lap today. Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to be. So as you're turning there, uh, let me just say a, a quick word about the month of July. Um, I've missed you. I haven't preached much, uh, much in July. Valentine has preached a couple of times. KC preached last week. And um, first of all, I want to say thank you to Valentine uh, for preaching and just doing the hard work of preparing a sermon. And he did a great job in, uh, in the time he got to spend with us. And for me personally, uh, July has been a difficult month for various reasons. And it has been a real kindness from the Lord to allow me to come and sit with you and to allow the Spirit of God to apply a sermon to my own heart. And so it's been a real kindness from God to allow me the opportunity to come and, and receive the preach word um, as opposed to, to give that in, in July. And so I'm very thankful for that and thankful that you are a church family that's open to that, 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 that enjoys hearing various voices speak the good news of Jesus in applicable ways to your soul. So I just want to applaud you and say thank you for being a church open to that, willing to do that, um, that enjoys that. So thank you for being that sort of a church. So um, if you have uh, not been with us over the last several months, uh, you would not know that we have been in a set of sermons to the Ten Commandments. And we are in part 14 today, and this is the last one. So we are in the Tenth Commandment. This is our last sermon and a set of sermons on the Ten Commandments. And we have uh, found ourselves in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. So I'm going to read this text, which is going to be the most important thing that I do uh, today. And then I'm going to say a couple of things about it. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word. And I think it is a word that, that we all need to hear. It's a word that I know I need to hear. And because I know many of you, I know that you need to hear it. It's a word that culturally, like we need to hear this word, the 10th commandment from the Lord. So um, in light of that, I, I wanna kind of work around this commandment from a, a few different angles and a couple of different questions. And here's the first question that I just wanted to jump straight in uh, this morning and uh, to try to deal with. And, and here's the first question, is what is prohibited in this commandment? Like, what is the Lord looking at us and saying, you shall not do? Like, what is the Lord looking at and saying, if, if there's something you need to steer clear of, he's defining it in the 10th commandment, you need to steer clear of this. What is the this in the 10th commandment that we need um, to steer clear of? And the answer is pretty straightforward when you read it. The first uh, a couple of words in, in verse 17, you shall not covet. Now, what is not quite so clear is what does it mean to covet? What is coveting? I want to give you a definition that I read probably about 10 years ago now. I was reading a book called Future Grace, and there is a chapter in this book called Future Grace that deals with how do you fight against coveting with faith in the future grace of God. And in that chapter, this is how the author defined coveting. And I think this is a really clear definition, a rememberable, you know, a memorable one that you can memorize easily. And I hope the Lord will lodge this into your heart. He said this, coveting is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. Coveting is desiring something 
so much that God doesn't seem satisfying anymore and that we are banking on that thing to give us the satisfaction that we want. It's desiring something so much that we lose our satisfaction, our contentment in God. Let me just take that in parts really briefly here. Coveting is desiring. So the 10th commandment is, is not addressing a deed, it's addressing desires. The, the core of coveting is your desires. The, the, the 10th commandment crawls behind our deeds and addresses our heart. What it is that our hearts are wanting, our, our desires. So it's an issue of desire. Coveting is desiring something. Now, most often in the Bible, the, the word covet is used in the context of money and possessions. If you look at verse 17 in Exodus 20, you see it used in that context. So Exodus 20 is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You know, on, on down the list, his, his wife, his servants, his ox, his donkeys, or anything that is your neighbor's. It's, it's in that context of money and possessions. And I think we need to hear it in that context. That the Bible is very clear that money and possessions have the ability to whisper in such a seductive voice that it oftentimes will lure our heart away from contentment in God, thinking that we have to have money and possessions to ever be content. Thinking that if we're ever going to be satisfied, we have to have these things, the next thing, the new thing, the next house, the, the next car, that you know, just the next thing you can purchase that money and possessions have that unique ability to seduce us like that. The Bible does not say money and possessions are evil. It just says that there, it, oftentimes the human heart will desire money and possessions in evil ways. That's the issue with them. So it's oftentimes in, you know, in and around the, the issue of money and possessions and in that context. But it's not the only thing that coveting can be aimed at. Our hearts, when they covet, they can be aimed at anything. At absolutely anything. I love what Thomas Watson, he was an old Puritan pastor, he said it this way. He said, coveting is an insatiable desire forgetting the world. And I think that's a good way to define the something. It's anything in the world. It, it, can it be a new house? Can it be a new car? Yes, it can be all of those things. Can it be money and possessions? Yes, it can be that. But it can be so much more than just that. It can be intimacy. It can be someone else's intellect. It can be someone else's appearance. It can be power. It can be prestige. It can be position. It can be someone else's circumstance in life. Like, I just want their life. I want their giftings from God. I want their bank account. I want what they have. I want their position. It can be any of those things. When your heart is coveting, that covetous heart can be aimed at absolutely anything in the world. So, so coveting is desiring something. It's that insatiable desire to get the world. It, it's desiring something so, so much that we lose our contentment in God. Out of all the, the differences that we could talk about among people in this room, here is one commonality of every pu uh, person in this room. Every one of us in this room have been hardwired by God to desperate, like with this desperate sort of like soul thirst and heart hunger. You have it, I have it, we all have it. We are all on the desperate search for something that will quench that soul thirst, that will satisfy that heart hunger. We're all on that search. Now, you may not think about your life that way, but you're living that way. We're, we're constantly tuned to what will quench that, that thirst, what will satisfy that hunger. You're tuned to it, I'm tuned to it. Now think about how the wisdom of God works here. God hardwires the human heart to have a desperate hunger in it, a deep soul thirst in it. 
and he knows that he is the one being in the universe big enough and good enough to satisfy that thirst, to, to take care of that hunger. And that wiring with that thirst and him being the one being that can satisfy that thirst, here's what it's meant to do in your life and my life. It's meant for us to look at God and say yes to God. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna worship you because you're the one being in the universe that can quench what, what is so, like that hunger in me. You're the one being that can do that. See, this is the wisdom of God and how he has wired the world. You have a deep soul hunger. He's the one person that can satisfy that hunger. And it's a great marriage. Here is what coveting is. It's forsaking God as the one being in the universe that can satisfy that deep soul hunger and demanding that one of his gifts in creation will do that. It's taking one of God's gifts and demanding that they do what only God can do. It's desiring them so much, expecting them to give only what God can give. That's what coveting is. It's turning away from God as the sole source of your soul's satisfaction and demanding that something else give that to you. This is what coveting is. Desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. Thinking, if I can only get that, then my happiness will be secured. And, and the that being something other than God. That's coveting. Now, let me work around this 10th commandment and, and just try to highlight a few nuances with this particular commandment. I'm going to give you four of these real briefly here. So when you're thinking about the 10th, you know, 10th commandment, here are a few nuances I think is helpful for you to know if you want to understand the 10th commandment. Here's the first one. The 10th commandment functions like a bookend. So think of all 10 commandments. You have a beginning one and you have an end one. And the beginning and the end commandment are very similar. They're like saying the same thing, just in different words. So think about commandment one. Commandment one is you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, so it's not saying, you, you know, the, the primary issue of the, the first commandment is not saying watch out for little wooden statues that you might put on, you know, on your mantle in your house. That's not the issue. It's talking about idolatry. It's talking about um, you taking anything in God's creation, one of God's gifts, and inflating that gift of God and, and making that into a God in your life. It's you taking one of God's gifts and demanding that that gift give you what only God can give you. If I can only have like fill in the blank, then I'll be happy. If I can only have fill in the blank, then I'll have that sort of significance and approval I've always longed for. Okay, that's idolatry. That's the first commandment. It's saying no other gods before me. Now it's interesting um, when Paul is explaining in Ephesians 5 what it means to covet. Okay, in Ephesians 5.5, 5, Paul is addressing those who covet. Now, when he says those who covet, he puts in parentheses an explanation of what it means to covet. He says those who covet, covet now he explains it in parentheses, that is an idolater. He uses idolatry language to define and explain what coveting is. Now, I think you need to know that. That when you were talking about the 10th commandment, it's really another way to talk about idolatry. See, what coveting is, is saying, here is one of God's gifts. I'm going to, to demand that thing be a God to me. I'm going to demand it give me what only God can give me so that if I can just have this, it will satisfy that place in me and that part of me that only God was meant to satisfy. See, in that way, the first and 10th commandment are very similar. That They're bookends to the 10 commandments. Here's the second thing. 
The 10th commandment works inside out rather than outside in. If you look at the other commandments, the other commandments have an outside in approach. They, they start with a, a behavior or some external action and then allow you to trace that external action to the core of the commandment, your heart. But it's an outside in sort of an approach. So as an example, just take the sixth commandment, do not murder. Murder is a very external sort of sin, right? Unlawfully taking another person's life is an external action that we do. So it starts like that. It's an external action that you then have to trace to your heart. And Jesus does a good job of showing that that external action is meant to be traced to your heart. So in Matthew 5, when Jesus is um, explaining the Ten Commandments and he gets to the, to the Sixth Commandment, murder, he, he tells us in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He takes the external action that is very clear in the sixth commandment. You shouldn't murder. If you murder, that's a sin, and you're going to be held uh, you know, accountable to that. But then he goes on to explain in verse 22, but I say to you, and he's going to explain the heart of the commandment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. If you're unrighteously ang you know, angry with a person, you got bitterness and resentment that just dominate your life, you're breaking the sixth commandment. And Jesus is helping us see that. That the sixth commandment starts with this external action, but you need to trace that down to the heart. But you see how it works? Most commandments work like this. External action, now trace it backwards. But that's not how the 10th commandment works. The 10th commandment starts with your heart and then says, now you can then trace it to all of these external deeds beyond that. But it starts inside of you, not outside of you. It's addressing a desire, not a deed in your life. Now think about what that requires from us if we're gonna deal faithfully with the 10th commandment. It requires real honesty from you and I. Okay, here's the reason, let's just take the sixth commandment again. If you murder someone, that is a hard thing to deny. They're dead in front of you. It's a very external visible sin. But if someone comes and says, let's trace that murder back to your heart, and they come to you and say, man, it seems like you are unrighteously angry with this person. It seems like there is bitterness and resentment in you. That is very easy to deny, and it's very hard for them to prove because bitterness and, and anger like that have an internal dimension to it. They're, they're not visible sins. They're invisible sins. You see, you see that? So to admit to that requires a real level of honesty, and that is exactly true with the 10th commandment. It's not a visible type of a thing. It's an invisible type of thing that requires you and I to be very honest about our own hearts. It requires the Lord to really illuminate this for us, to really show us what's inside of us, to really show us what our desires are doing and how they're flawed and how they're running after the wrong things. So can we just take a moment here together, just right there where you are, will you just take a moment to ask the Lord to show you that? Will you ask the Lord to... Uh, to help you with honesty as you deal with that? To be honest about where you are desiring something so much that you have lost your contentment in God? Because it takes real honesty to do that, to, to deal well with the 10th commandment. Here's the third thing about this commandment. The 10th commandment highlights an, an especially serious sin. Now, I want you to picture just reading through the, the list of the Ten Commandments here. And let's just say that, that you get to, you know, Commandment 5. You need to honor your father and your mother. It's a pretty big sin. 
We need, we need to do that one. Then you get to commandment six and, and you hear, you shall not murder. We all agree we don't want to be murdered. That's a pretty big sin. Shouldn't do that. Serious sin. You get to number seven, you shall not commit adultery. We're all agreeing that is a grievous sin. You, you, you shouldn't do that. We're all agreeing that, that like, that's big time, right? You go on to the next one, stealing. Nobody wants to be stolen from. We're all agreeing that stealing is a big deal. You get to number nine, lying. We all agree that we hate to be lied to, right? So, so we all agree that it's a big deal. Then you get to number 10 and you hear that the Lord say, and you shall not covet. And it would be a common feeling for a person to get to commandment number 10 and feel like that's just not quite as serious as the sins I've been reading. I mean, murder is serious, but coveting, I mean, come on, it's, I mean, it's not saying that we want to do it, but it just doesn't seem that serious. But that is not the way the Bible talks about coveting. The Bible talks about coveting in very serious language. Let me give you some, some kind of some substance around that. It's interesting to see in the Bible the list of sins that coveting oftentimes makes its way into. Example, Romans 1, verse 28 and beyond. This will be on the screen for you. It goes like this. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Isn't it interesting that covetousness makes its way into that list? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, same Greek word for covetousness, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Isn't it interesting it makes it into that list? Ephesians 5, verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Can we all just agree that the Bible treats this particular sin as very serious? As not a second-class sin? As not a small deal, but as a very big deal? Now the question is, why does the Bible treat it like that? Why is the Bible so serious in how it deals with coveting and desiring something so much that you would lose your contentment in God? Why is the Bible so serious about this? Here's the answer to that question. Because coveting lies at the root of virtually every other sin. I hear that. The reason coveting is so big in the Bible is because coveting lies at the root of virtually every other sin you are ever going to commit. It's interesting, in Jeremiah chapter 2, um, if you know the story of the Old uh, Testament, you know the people of Israel sinned in varsity ways all the time. Just like us, they were professional lawbreakers. I mean, the, the, the list of sins is long for the people of Israel. Oh, I mean, you just name a sin from small to very grievous. You just name the sin the people of Israel have committed it. Now listen to what Jeremiah chapter 2 says about their sin. 
The Lord in Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13 says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Now, first of all, when you just read two evils, I'm like, no, they've committed a lot more than two evils. I mean, if we want to start listing them, we'll find a lot more than two evils that the people of Israel have committed. So, so, but he's going to take this whole laundry list of sin, and he is going to boil that sin down into two things. He's saying, if you want to know what lies at the root of every other sin that they're committing, here's what lies at the root. If you want to distill all of these other sins into two particular things, here are the two particular evils. They've committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Problem one, I am the sole source of their soul's satisfaction. That they're hardwired to, to want to be happy. They're hardwired to want to have that, that hunger in them satisfied. I alone can do that. But here's the problem. They have forsaken me, the one who can do that. Here's problem number two. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. That's problem one. And here's problem two. And hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Problem one, they have turned from me, from the sole source of that, for, for that hunger in them, to, to quench that hunger in them. Problem number two, rather than looking to me for their soul satisfaction, they are now looking at a million other things to satisfy their soul. And here's the problem with all of those things. They just can't do it. They're broken cisterns. Your marriage is a great thing, but it's a broken cistern. Your job is a great thing, but it's a broken cistern. Money is a great thing, but it's a broken cistern. Everything that you could attach your heart's joy to, here's the problem with it other than Jesus. It's a broken cistern. And the Lord is saying, this is what lies below every sin. At the root of every, every sin that you're going to commit is forsaking God as the, as the one who can quench that heart hunger and, and looking at something else, one of God's gifts, as if it can do that. That, that lies at the root of every other sin that we're going to commit. Like the people of Israel, coveting lies underneath every little dirty deed of our lives. Now hear that. Underneath every wrong deed in your life lies this particular sin, coveting. If you want to see that, it's easy just to read through the Ten Commandments and, and get a sense of that. Like why is it that a person would commit adultery? Here's the reason. They have stopped looking at God to, to solve their heart hunger, and they've started looking at something else. Why would a person steal something? Coveting is the answer. They have stopped. Their heart is no longer content in God. They're now looking for something else to satisfy their heart. And to get it, they'll steal it. Now, if you know um, the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7, you know this is his story. Uh, the people of Israel came in, and they had the ability to, to take all these things in this city. But the Lord said, do not take any of them. But Achan found some stuff he just couldn't say no to, and he took it. And then when he got caught, listen to his explanation. This is Joshua chapter 7. And Achan answered Joshua. He just got caught stealing, and listen to what he says about it. He says, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak, and 20 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them. My, my heart just lost its contentment in God and it looked at this and said, that's what's gonna make me okay. And as soon as his heart coveted them, it says he took them. What, what's behind him taking them? Him coveting them. 
See, behind every deed you want to talk about that's wrong lies a heart that is coveting, desiring something so much that it has lost its contentment in God. Maybe this is another way we can talk about the series of coveting. A, a coveting heart, a heart that is covetous, listen to this, makes you susceptible to every other sin imaginable. You just named the laundry list of sin, and when your heart is not content in God, but it is coveting, you are now susceptible to every sin on the whole list of sins. Every one of them, you're, you're now susceptible to. I love what Jeremiah Burroughs, he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And it's a rare jewel, isn't it? that the rare jewel of Christian contentment. In that book, he says, the devil loves to fish in troubled waters. And in troubled waters, he's talking about your soul. When, you're, when your soul just has unruly desires in them, just, just desiring everything but God to quench that hunger in you. He's saying when your heart is acting like that and has those unruly desires in them, you are now susceptible to every sin on the list of sins. And this is totally affirmed in the Bible. This is um, what James chapter one tells us. And James 1, chapter 14, or James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, James tells us this, but each person is tempted. Here's when you're tempted. When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When he has stopped being content in Jesus and he is looking for something else to make him content. We're, we're tempted when we are lured away and enticed by our own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here's how it works. Every sinful deed begins with a sinful desire. And when those sinful desires reach full maturity, when they, when they grow and they fully blossom, here is what James is saying every one of us can expect, death. That's where coveting leads. That's why it's so serious. Is because its end is always death. When you have sinful desires happening in your heart, it leads to sinful deeds, which will one day lead to death for you. This is why coveting is so big in the Bible. Why when we get to the last commandment, we should not have that feeling of, man, the other ones felt big, but this one not so much. It is a big deal in the scriptures. Last thing about the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment serves a climatic role of convincing us of our own sinfulness. It has a unique role in the Ten Commandments to convince us of just how deep and dark the whole of sin is in us. Now, I just want you to think for a minute about a person who is fairly upright in their living. So they're fairly upright. So, so when they look at the commandments so far, they look at commandment six, they think, I haven't murdered anyone. They look at commandment seven, and they think, well, I haven't cheated on my wife or, or my husband. They look at commandment eight and just down the list, and they think, well, I, I, I'm doing good in those areas. Commandment number 10 is specifically designed for them. It's specifically designed for the person who is upright, thinking they've done pretty well, who hasn't connected that the, the physical act of murder is really being expressed in an angry, bitter heart. I haven't connected that. But it's an upright person, pretty moral. When they read through the first nine commandments, it is not uncommon for a fairly upright person to think, I think I've nailed it. I, I think I'm doing pretty good here. If you want proof of that, think about the rich young ruler in the New Testament. Jesus throws him the, the gauntlet of the first nine commandments. I mean, he throws them out there and the guy feels like this. What else is on the list? Because I've nailed all of those. 
I mean, if you want to kind of get the heart of, of, of this guy, he's an upright, moral person. He just looked at the first nine commandments and thinking, man, I've nailed those. God is probably going to draft me number one because I'm that awesome. I mean, this is going to go really well for me when I stand before God. And then to, to that moment, to the rich young ruler, Jesus throws the last co commandment out there. H how about coveting? And in that moment, he gets behind this man's deeds all the way into his heart and into his desires, and he asks him this question. Is there anything right now that you're desiring so much that you've lost your contentment in God? And that moment humbled this man. That's what the 10th commandment is meant to do. It's meant to take our heart that can twist the first nine commandments into thinking we've actually satisfied them and to help us see that when we stand under the 10th commandment, we are all doomed. It's meant to, to take a man who is fairly upright and moral and thinks he's pretty good, that when the dust settles and the smoke clears, God's probably gonna be okay with him. It's meant to take that man and to convince him that if he's depending upon his good deeds to make him right with God, that, that one day he will absolutely be doomed before God. It's meant to do that for him. I was listening to Michael Horton, or actually reading um, something that he had written about this commandment. And he was telling the story of talking to a Jewish rabbi. And here's how the conversation went. Um, the, the conversation was this Jewish rabbi, you know, telling uh, Michael Horton this, uh, this idea. He said, you know, one of the greatest differences between our two religions, Christianity and Judaism, one of, our, one of the greatest differences between our two religions is the idea that you've committed a sin just by desiring it or thinking it. Or just by, like our heart desiring it or thinking it that we've actually sinned. He says, we believe you actually have to commit the physical act before it's really sin. Otherwise, we'd be sinning all the time. That's the point of the 10th commandment, that we're sinning all the time. That, that when God looks at us, he's not just saying, what have you done? He's saying, what have you desired? And every time that you have desired something so strongly that you have lost your contentment in God, that you're sinning in that moment, that you are storing up for yourselves wrath before God in that moment that that is a sin that will eternally damn you away from God for all eternity. That's the point of the 10th commandment, is to help convince us of that. I, I love how Martin Luther, the reformer, how he says it. He says, the last commandment then is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright, to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended the preceding commandments. The 10th commandment is, is meant for that guy who thinks, man, I'm actually doing okay through the first nine. The 10th is like that moment where God stabs us in the heart to help us see that no, you're not doing okay. When you stand before God, you are going to be doomed if your good behavior is what you're banking on. It's meant to convince us of that. Man, I'm just praying that the spirit of God would help us all see that. That when God looks at us, it's not just a deed issue, it's a desire issue. And every time in the entirety of our life where we have desired something other than God so much that we've lost our contentment in God, that we are sinning in that moment against God. Okay, if that's what's to be prohibited, let me just touch on really briefly what's to be pursued. We've talked about this each uh, go around that each commandment has two sides. There is a don't do side and there is a do side. So, so what is the, the do side? 
Well, if coveting is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God, it's, it's kind of letting the cat out of the bag on what should be pursued. What should be pursued is contentment in God. And contentment and coveting work on it like in an inverse relationship. When coveting is high, it means your contentment in God is low. When contentment in God is high, it means coveting is low. They work like that. When one's up, the other's down. This is the, the relationship that they have. So let me define what it means to, to be content in God. And this is the point of the, the 10th commandment. The, the point of the 10th commandment is not to scream at us, don't do these things. The point of the 10th commandment is to plead with us, do these things. Man, be about this, pursue that. So, so what is to be pursued? Here's a definition of contentment. Contentment is having a heart that is fully satisfied in God, regardless of the circumstances. Contentment is having a heart that is fully satisfied in God, regardless of the circumstances. A covetous heart has its joy fixed to a million other things than Jesus. A content heart has its joy firmly fixed to Jesus. A covetous heart or for a covetous heart, the search for satisfaction and happiness and wholeness takes them away from Jesus. For a content heart, the search for satisfaction and happiness and wholeness takes them directly to Jesus. Now, and note this last phrase in, in this definition of contentment, regardless of the circumstances. Like, here's the good news about contentment. Because, because Jesus is always available to us because he's always available to us. Contentment can be had regardless of the people in your life, the amount of money you have in your life, the place that you're in. It can be had regardless of those things. It can be had at any point. This is what Paul's point in Philippians 4. You can be content regardless of the circumstances. Because here's the thing, Jesus is not available to you based on your circumstances. He's always available to you. So because he's always available to you, contentment can always be had by you because you can always have Jesus. That's the great news with contentment. So that's what's to be pursued, contentment. A heart that's fully satisfied in God regardless of the circumstances. Now I wanna spend a few minutes here applying this. How is the command to be applied? I wanna do this through two questions. Number one, I want you just to take an honest evaluation and look at your own heart and answer this question. Where are you currently coveting? Where are you desiring things so much that you have lost your contentment in God? Money and possessions is probably a pretty good place to start. And I think for most of us, how, the, how seeing that will work is taking something in our life, an external action, and tracing that back down to our heart. Taking the deed and, and tracing that back down to the desire. Money and possessions is a pretty good place to start. How, how are you relating to money and possessions? And listen to me, you need to assume badly. Just start there. Just start by assuming probably not very well. See, here, here's the problem in our culture. Relating to, to money over a covetous heart is so normal that it's become almost impossible for us to see it. So you probably just should assume that that you're relating to, to money in, in not a healthy way. But, but it, it you know, can be applied to much more than, than just money. Maybe it's power for you. Maybe it's position for you. Maybe it's intimacy and sex for you. Maybe it's how you approach food. Try, trying to, to, to demand food give you what only God could give you. Maybe it's technology. 
Maybe it's marriage, the marriage you would love to have someday because you're single, the marriage you're in and just dissatisfied with. And I, I wanna encourage you just to be honest with yourself here. Ask the Lord to show you where you're desiring something so badly that you just have lost your appetite for God because you're just sure that this thing will be the thing that's gonna give you what your heart really craves. Where are you coveting right now in your life? And here's the second question. What are you doing to fight against covetousness and for contentment? What are you doing to try to fight against coveting and for contentment? Now, let, let me just start, kind of as we think about that, by, by clarifying one thing. The default mode of every human heart is toward discontentment or toward coveting. That's the default mode of our heart. When you come out of the womb, you have a heart who is saying to God, I'm not gonna find my heart satisfaction in you. I'm gonna find it in one of these million things over here. That is how we are all born. And the only place, or, or the place for us to start in the journey towards contentment and away from coveting, the, the, the place to start, the only place to start is for the Lord himself to save us, to rescue us, and to reshape and remake the desires in us so that we actually want God. That's where it starts. It's for God to actually save and rescue and redeem our hearts so that God now becomes desirable to us. So, so let me just state this as clearly as I can. To war against covetousness and for contentment, we need new hearts before we need new plans. We're hearing that. Okay, so if that's you this morning, if you don't have a new heart yet, God stands so ready and available this morning to change your heart to rescue and redeem your heart, to, to help you this morning for maybe the first time in your life actually begin to desire God. Man, if that's you, begin to ask God for that. Now, let me clarify the second thing here as we talk about what, what would a plan look like to fight against covetousness and for contentment. If you have a new heart, if God has changed your heart, if that's you, hear me, you also need a new plan. If you don't have a new heart, a plan's worthless. If you do have a new heart, you need a plan if you're gonna fight against, against covetousness and for contentment. And, and listen, this is part of what it means to walk with Jesus in obedience. In, in uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus himself, this is red letters in the Bible, says, take care. In other words, like mark this, and this is something you wanna be sure and do. Take care, guard against all covetousness. Why? For your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus is commanding us in that moment, you've got to fight against this. Listen to me, if you're a believer, if you're a son or daughter of God and you're not fighting against covetousness, can I just tell you where your heart is? It's coveting. That's where, if you're not fighting against it, that's what you're doing. Because this is gonna be the natural default of the heart. If you're not actively fighting against it, that old default in you begins to take over. You get into that ditch and you're gonna find yourself coveting in no time. You, we actually have to develop like a mentality that says, I am gonna be at war with coveting. And I am going to be fighting for my soul's contentment in Jesus. Like I'm gonna get about the work, as Paul says in, in Colossians 3, 5, of putting covetousness to death. Like, I'm gonna be at war with this thing. I'm gonna treat it like that. That's gonna be my mentality toward it. I love what one guy said. He said, here's how you need to treat covetousness, that, that coveting heart in you. You need to treat it like it is a starving lion recently escaped from the zoo. You just picture a starving lion roaming your neighborhood. How are you gonna treat that thing? 
very seriously, aren't you? You're not just gonna stumble out in the street to check the mail in that moment. No, you're carrying a big gun if you go out there, right? Because you're gonna constantly be on guard. And you're gonna be, if you have a starving line in your neighborhood, your mentality with that starving line is not to cuddle with it, but to kill it, right? You're gonna have that mentality. And that is what this commandment is inviting us into, to pursuing it with that sort of intensity and fervency in our life. Now, let me just give you a quick list of things that I think would be helpful for you as you're thinking about what it looks like to fight against covetousness and for contentment. I'm gonna run through these as briefly as I can here. Number one, you have to remind yourself, you have to preach this to yourself, that desires are deathly serious. Just take a moment to imagine the, the Lord speaking to you and saying, this is the Lord saying, do you want me to show you something that has the potential to kill you? A, a serious sin that if you just allow it in your life, one day it will turn on you. It will put its hands around your neck and strangle you to death one day. Do you want me to show you that sin? And just imagine you saying, well, yes, Lord, I want you to show me that sin, yes. And the Lord looks back and says, here's that sin desiring something so much that you would lose your contentment in me. That, that's the sin. And you looking back and saying, but God, I, I, I thought it was gonna be a serious, like a big one. And the Lord answering back, yeah, it, it's the biggest one. It's the root of all of them. Just imagine that moment for you right now. Now look at me here. There is nothing in your life right now in this moment in this room more important than your desires. They will tell you everything about the trajectory of your life. There is nothing more important than right now you having deep, durable affections and desires for the Lord. And listen, if you don't, there is nothing more serious than that. If you don't, this is gonna be a day where you get to plead with the Lord to give you that. Because listen, if you don't, just hear James 1, it's going to your death. That's where it's heading. But if you do, it is going to your life and for wholeness and for human flourishing. That's where it's heading for you. Desires are deathly serious. You've gotta remind yourself of that. Secondly, you have to remind yourself, you have to preach to yourself what won't satisfy. You have to remind yourself of this. Every advertisement is trying to get you to believe that something in this world will satisfy you. Every advertisement is trying to lure your heart away from God and saying, no, what you really need to be happy is this thing. What you really need is this next thing. That's what you really need. You've got to remind yourself of what will not satisfy. And hear me say this, there is not one of God's gifts towards you, I don't care how good that gift is, that has the capacity to satisfy your soul. Not a one. I love how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, if you find that nothing in this world is able to satisfy your soul, the best possible explanation is that your soul is created for another world, namely for God. You have to remind yourself of that. If you're not reminding yourself of that, I'll guarantee you, you're believing right now in this moment that a million other things but God will satisfy you. We've got to preach that to ourselves, convince us daily of that. Remind ourselves of what won't satisfy us. Thirdly, we have to remind ourselves of what will satisfy us. 
of what actually does have the capacity to. We've got, we've got to not just say these won't do it. We've got to remind ourselves this is the one thing that can do it. And if you want, the, I think the text that you need to memorize and preach to yourself, John 6.35 is it. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, hear what, hear what Jesus is teaching us here. Because from my experience, most people just don't do a good job of like knowing what it is that the Lord is saying here. Here is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, do you know what it means to believe in me? Here's, here's what it means to believe in me. It does not mean that you just agree with some intellectual facts about what I've done, about what I've accomplished. That's not believing in me. That's just believing in some facts about me. What believing in me is doing is taking those facts, yes, believing in them, but then it's coming to me and experientially tasting that I am the bread of life, that I am the one that can satisfy that deep heart hunger. That's what belief is. See, that's what becoming a Christian is. See, if you wanna know if you're a Christian or not, here's how you can tell. If what you're banking on to, to make you a Christian is, I've agreed with some facts, let me just tell you, you're not a Christian. A Christian is a person who agrees with those facts and has now come to God in belief, come to Jesus in belief and experienced him as the one who can satisfy that heart hunger, satisfy that soul thirst in them, has experienced it like Jesus just did that for me. If you want a metaphor, think of a guy who's been in a desert for four days and hasn't drank a drop of water. I mean, the guy's about to thirst to death and all of a sudden he crosses the next hill and he stumbles down the, the, the hill there and he lands in a stream and takes his first drink of water in four days. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. That's a Christian. Someone who has experienced God like that. Not just agreed with facts, but has experienced Jesus as the one who has quenched the thirst in them. And didn't you know what it means to walk by faith in Jesus day after day after day? It means this, this is what walking by faith with Jesus means. It means I daily get back up and I come back to Jesus again. And I come back to Jesus again. And I come back to Jesus again, depending that today he's gonna quench my thirst again. Today he's gonna satisfy that hunger again. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to walk with the Lord. And we've gotta to preach to ourselves that he is the one that can satisfy us like that. Number four, we have to remind ourselves that God's a faithful father. And I'm thinking in particular of those who are in very difficult circumstances today. You just, your life isn't what you would hoped it would be. See, here is the origin of, of coveting in most of our hearts. It's the moment when God looks at us and says, this is what I want for your life right now. And we look back at God and say, that's not what I want for my life right now. I'm out. That's the moment of coveting. Now, here is what contentment looks like. The Lord comes to us and says, this is what I want for your life right now. And we say, it's not what I want, but I trust you enough to do good to me. I trust, I trust that you're a good dad for me. Listen, and I know there's a lot of us in that place right now today. And the only way you're gonna be content in that moment is to actually believe that God's a good daddy. I mean, hear, hear what I'm about to say. If God thought you needed something else right now in this season to glorify him, regardless of your circumstances are good or bad, if he thought you needed something else to glorify him right now and be content in this season, do you know what you would have? Something else. 
And if the Lord hasn't given you something else, do you know what the Lord's saying? You don't need anything else right now in this moment to glorify me and to be obedient to me. I, I love what Jerry Bridges, um, when his wife died, he's one of my favorite authors, when his wife died, a, a friend sent him a letter, and in that letter was this, th these words. Lord, I am willing to, one, receive what you give, two, lack what you withhold, and three, relinquish what you take. That's contentment. And you know the only way you'll ever say yes to those three things is for you to trust that God's a good daddy for you. So we gotta preach that to ourselves. We gotta convince ourselves of that. And then lastly, number five, is we have to give sacrificially. And I just wanna land it with something very practical. The, the context of coveting is most often money and possessions. So I think there's a reason for that. Money and possessions have a very seductive whisper in our life. And on top of that, I am fully convinced that there will be many Americans who have a vague appreciation for God that are one day going to land in hell for all eternity because they love, God, or love money more than God. And I believe that because the Bible says that. And so I think there is, there is a real practical thing in what we do with money that's very important to us. And here's the, the easiest way I could describe it. I think one of the best ways we can fight against coveting is to give sacrificially, like to give down deep where it actually hurts and costs us something in our life. And here's the reason. Every time we give sacrificially, here's what we're doing to our heart. We're preaching to our heart that our life does not consist in the abundance of our possession, but our, hearts our life consists in Jesus that he really is the bread of life, that he really is the satisfaction for our soul. He really is the thing that can quench our thirst. He really, every time we give sacrificially, we are preaching that to ourselves. We are saying that to ourselves. We're reminding ourselves of that. Now, here's how I wanna end this sermon and the set of sermons on the Ten Commandments. You can just shut your Bible if you want, and, and I want you just to look at me in the eye here as we finish up. When it comes to landing the whole set of sermons of the Ten Commandments, here's three things I want you to remember, just in summary of the Ten Commandments. Here's the first thing. The Ten Commandments are spoken from a good daddy's heart. Here's, here's the context we should read the Ten Commandments in. God Almighty gets down on a knee, he gathers his family, he puts his kids on the couch, and he calls a family meeting. And he looks at his family and his kids on the couch and says, can I show you the way to human flourishing? Can I show you what's good for you? Can I show you the way the world is? And then can I beg you and plead with you to walk in the way of wisdom? That's the context of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's words from a good daddy's heart to his kids about the way life is and what's gonna be good for them. Here's the second thing I want you to remember about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are meant to show you who you really are. That's a humbling thing, isn't it? See, the Ten Commandments are meant to show you just how deep the hole of sin goes in you. It's meant to show us that. I mean, if you think about the purpose of the Ten Commandments, here's one of the ways I'd want you to think about it. It's meant to take that vague sense that virtually every one of us carry. Here's the vague sense. That when the dust settles and the smoke clears, we're pretty good people and God's probably gonna be okay with us. The Ten Commandments are meant to take that vague sense that we all carry and absolutely kill that thing because it's just a lie. The Ten Commandments are meant to show us that when the dust settles and the smoke clears, if you're relating to God based on your performance, God has a big problem with you. He is not impressed with you. 
That what your, what your seemingly good deeds have earned you is an eternity away from God forever. See, that's what the Ten Commandments are supposed to show you. Just how deep the hole of sin goes in you. That if you're depending on your good deeds for your presentability before God, you will be doomed when you stand before God one day. It's meant to show you what you really are. And lastly, here's the last thing. I want you to remember this in the Ten Commandments. It's meant to lead you to grace, which is what you really need. The person of Jesus himself. I hope that you have had this feeling repeatedly throughout the last couple of months. Every commandment I hope is producing you this feeling. Man, I feel like such a failure. God, just, man, I'm trying, but I just can't live up to that commandment. I just can't live up to that commandment. God's standard is way up there, and I just can't get up there. I hope that you have felt that in every sermon to the Ten Commandments, because listen, that's what they're supposed to produce in you. And here's the thing. If you have felt that, and you're just honest enough to say that, do you know what that makes you ready for? what you really need, the grace of God. And listen to this, until you feel that, you're not ready for the grace of God yet. You're immune to the grace of God. But it's that moment of feeling for the first or 14,000th time, man, in light of God's standard, I am just an absolute failure. It's that moment where God opens up our hands and he pours grace upon grace in the person and work of Jesus into our lives. And I hope that has been true for you. Let's pray together. And that last point we get to end on today because we're gonna take communion. And communion is a way of reminding ourselves every time that we take it, that there is grace upon grace upon grace when we honestly bring our sin to the Lord. So I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be helpful. And I'm asking for the Lord right now in this room to help us feel and get a sense of how deathly serious our desires are. And that if your affections for the Lord have grown cold, that you would not leave this place without begging the Lord to restore those affections. Even now, the Spirit of God would be shining a light on things that you're desiring so much that you've lost your contentment in, in God. And that right now, the Spirit of God would be enabling repentance. Gosh, and if we can just, if we can just open up our life, open up our hands right now to the Lord and allow the Spirit of God to do that, take down our barriers, pull down our walls, allow the Spirit of God in, allow Jesus in right now. We can walk in the light and be honest with the Lord right now admitting and confessing where our desires are just unruly and out of control and directed at everything but the Lord. Here's what communion reminds us of. Grace will meet us right there. 
The grace that not only pardons our sin, but gives us power in working against it will meet us right there in that place. And so here's the thing with communion. Communion is, is, is for those who are in relationship with Jesus. So that means if there's never been a moment where, like the man four days about to die of, of dehydration in the desert, stumbles into the stream and tastes the water. If that moment has never happened between you and Jesus, where not just agreeing with facts, but experientially tasting the Lord as the satisfaction for your soul. That's step one. That's where, that's where it starts. So if you've never had that moment, you can open up your hands to God. You can hold up your life to God today and you can call out to God, save me, but rescue me, redeem me right now in God Almighty because the work of Jesus is so ready to do that in this room. I just want to plead with you. If you never had that moment, this is it. Call out to the Lord and he will save you right now. And if that's you, as we begin to take communion in a moment, then we're going to have a prayer table set up. We would love to know that before you leave today. So communion is for those who are in relationship with God. And for believers, it is for those who are in right relationship with God. If there is any sin in your life that you are holding on to, unwilling to let go of, communion is not for you today. But it can be. All that's required is for you to open up your hands, for you to confess that to the Lord, and then, and then by all means, come up with us and enjoy the grace and forgiveness and power of God in dealing with our sin. And if you've got kids in the room, Communion is a wonderful opportunity to teach them. If they're Christians, they can come up and take it with you. If they're not yet Christians, then they can come up and watch. And I think it would lead to such great conversations on the way home. So Father, would you speak? Spirit, would you work right now? Would you apply Jesus to our souls right now in this room? It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.